and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about my new book, Shift Your Mind, which came out in October. And the book really focuses on these nine mental shifts to help you thrive in both preparation and performance. So if you're new to the podcast, one of the thesis and one of the frameworks and theories that I believe strongly in is that we need to shift our mind in preparation and performance. And you will hear me talk about it with pretty much every guest that I interview. And today's guest is no different. So I hope you enjoy the book if you've read it. If you haven't, please check it out. And once again, if you have read the book, it would mean a lot if you went over to Amazon and left us for a view over there. It really does help us expand our reach. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past interviews, We'd greatly appreciate it if you head over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Once again, these reviews really do help us expand our reach for both the book and the podcast. Now to today's guest. Dan Abrahams is somebody who I had the good fortune of going on his amazing podcast, which is called The Sports Psych Show. And we actually recorded a earlier version of this in full transparency. It just didn't record. So we got to re-record a few months later and it was a blast. So this takes a little bit of a different framework, a different turn than a lot of my past episodes. We just dive into sports psychology, which both of us are extremely passionate about. We play in similar sandboxes as far as the athletes that we work with. So this was a blast. And a bit about Dan, he's a sports psychologist that works alongside individuals, teams, coaches, and organizations all over the world. He is known for his passion to demystify sports psychology and for creating simple to use performance techniques. One of the things that you're going to really appreciate about Dan is he is extremely articulate, thoughtful and intentional about the word choices that he uses, but he still does it with an energy, a tenacity that I really appreciate. And Dan's going to talk a little bit about his mindset, how he approaches things. He's going to talk about nuance and the value of nuance, 
personality and how personality plays a role and how teams and and working inside of a team is different than maybe playing golf or playing an individual sport. So Dan is just a a wealth of knowledge. He's a former professional golfer. He also has a first class honors degree in psychology and a master's degree in sports psychology. He's just an amazing person who's extremely thoughtful, wise, and intelligent when it comes to sports psychology. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Dan Abrahams. Dan, so excited to have you on the podcast and full disclosure for everyone listening. We recorded this previously and Brian, me, get to talk in third person, I guess, when you're on a podcast. I, I, I did not get the recording. So I contact Zoom. I'm like, hey, can I get this recording? And they say, hey, it doesn't look like you can. So here we are. And so I think today's episode might be a little bit different because uh, we can certainly find out about Dan's story and how he got to where he's at. And, and Dan, feel free to weave that in. But I would love to just like riff on, on sports psychology with you because we play in a similar sandbox and um, I'm down to make this a different episode because I'd rather be curious and learn than learn about stuff that you've already shared with me in the past. So this is maybe a little bit selfish on my part, but people often ask, well, who's your audience for the podcast? And I usually say me and then anybody else who likes things that I like. And um, so that's, that's where I'd like to go. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about before I hit the record button, you know, it's definitely one of those moments where I was like, we should just be recording this right now and have this be the podcast uh, is this idea of being a contrarian. And I think both of us are contrarians maybe by nature or by nurture or however that was developed and you talked about the power of sort of and instead of or and also instead of but uh, I might be doing that wrong. But talk about, first of all, like where did that come from for you, the ability to be maybe skeptical or contrarian or whatever word you want to put on it? And then give us some thoughts on how to go about doing that in a useful way. Well, Brian, I mean, first up, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. And, and for also for full disclosure, we, we spent a whole afternoon together, didn't we, on Zoom, recording for my podcast and then me recording for your podcast, which sadly failed, but never mind. And I'm after, delighted to... Afternoon for you, morning for me. Morning for you, afternoon for me. And I'm... I'm, I'm I'm I look you know what I'm happy that it it didn't work because we get to we get to talk again and I get the pleasure of your company so thank you for 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 being patient and inviting me back on what a great what a great first question you know what built my curiosity around my profession of sports psychology and um I I suppose look several things you know having been a competitor myself a professional golfer uh having spent a lot of time around professional golfers and then subsequently for the last 15 years, uh, a variety of sports competitors. Um, I, 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 I've come to realise, and I'm not saying I've come to realise, like I've come to realise this year in 2020, I've come to realise over the last X amount of years, uh, how different people, there's so, there's so many individual differences in terms of how people achieve. Different people achieve in different ways. And, and there's some, some lines and some framing to that as well. I mean, there was, I think there are certain behaviors you can engage in that lend itself to not being successful. Clearly sitting on a beach all day, sipping gin and tonic, as attractive as that sounds sometimes, probably isn't going to lead you to winning the 100 meters in the Olympic Games, right? Um, so, so there are some boundaries but I'm curious as to as you mentioned and also rather than uh, but uh, 
because I just think there's so many ways that that we can go about uh, striving to achieve. And I, I, I suppose I read social media and and sometimes i'm just curious i'm just curious to put more meat on the bone i'm curious to ask the questions when i sit down and i write daily on my linkedin posts my facebook posts etc uh, i'm trying to see the 360 degree view i think that's absolutely vital and as, as i say brian i think that predominantly has 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 built over the years of seeing people achieve in different ways um and i suppose when i reflect back as well um, I think about my career and what I was trying to do and the different ways I could have gone about doing it. Um, and also just really the curiosity of the scientific evidence that there's nothing out, out there that really says this is the way to do it. This is the only way to do it. So when I when I hear, if I may say so, um, say, say diatribes coming out of the UK and North American um, sports, coaches talking about you must control your attitude effort and energy you must do it this way you must be coachable um you must do this you must i'm always like scratching my head going mm, really is that true can we can we weave a different story here is it a different white lens to look at this um is there a different truth here or, or an alternative truth so i'm just i'm curious i try not to be an agitator as such maybe a slight contrarian um just to just to uh, stretch myself and tap into other people's knowledge. Man, so much in that statement for the last minute or whatever. <laughs> however ten long minutes I rambled on that. Felt like, felt like a minute. For me, I just tweeted something this morning and I was tweeting it. And the sentence that I ended up tweeting, there were three sentences, but the final one was the biggest performances of our life often require a play mindset. And I'm, I'm sharing that because the, that's the edited version. I started by saying the biggest performances of our life always require a play mindset. And I changed always to often. And I, I actually tweeted out recently that if I ever use always um, in a tweet, please call me out because I pretty much always believe that always is not necessary and always is, is too all-encompassing. And I love the power of polarity and the idea of, well, we might need this at this time and this at another time and the power of when. And I also think that there is a duty, obligation, responsibility that if you're going to play in some sort of science to always be asking questions. And that is the idea of having a hypothesis. Like it's not to prove yourself right. It's actually to prove yourself wrong. And I think it's important to have conviction, but to have curiosity before you have the conviction and to ask the questions so that you can be convicted. And the last thing I'll say is I walked into a major league soccer locker room once and there was a star player and he was reading a book and the book was all about these superstars and the commonalities between these superstar athletes in basketball. And I looked at him and I said to him, do you enjoy reading these types of books? He was like, yeah, I love reading about greatness. I was like, oh, are you into like nonfiction and the science and all that? And he goes, no, absolutely not. And I go, oh, really? Like, why not? And he said, well, I want to study greatness. I don't want to study averages. 
And I go, oh, tell me more about that. He's like, well, a lot of times science is studying the average. And what's the average? He's like, I want to not, I don't want to know about average because I want to be great. Like I want to play on the U.S. national team and be an all-star and all this stuff. And it hit me at that time, at that moment, because I really value science and research. And I know you do too, but it's an, and it's not an, or it's like, okay, we can know the science and the psychology, and we can understand that there are outliers and there are people that um, might be different and uh, might bring a different set of skills or tools to their craft. I'd love to hear you riff on how you think about science and art as it relates to your work. Look, as you were speaking there, I, I wrote down three words that I tend to use in my short posts daily. Um, maybe, possibly, perhaps. I tend to use quite often. Uh, you talk about polarity. I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I strive to be careful um, with what I, what I say, I've got to say, what I, what I write and what I've got to write about because um, I, 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 I'm conscious of binary arguments. I, I'm conscious of going to the extreme and saying people have to be this way. Um, I think motivation is nuanced. I think personality can be nuanced. We'll, we'll come back to these uh, constructs, psychological constructs, motivation, uh, personality, uh, mental skills can be nuanced. Uh, I think leadership can be nuanced. Teamship can be nuanced. Relationship, as in coach-athlete relationship, can be nuanced. Um, so uh, I th what you've just said there really interests me about this athlete who, you know, you, you've asked some interesting questions and, and he said, well, you know what, I'm not that interested in the average. I'm interested in, in greatness. And I uh, let, let's go straight towards maybes and possibly and perhaps. Um, I, I think we have to be, how do I treat this? I think we have to be careful as well. Uh, I think there's definitely going to be athletes who sit there and say exactly what that athlete said to you, which is, I'm just not interested in an average. I'm not interested in reading any books that uh, shout science at me. Um, I'm just interested in, let's say, a Kobe quote you know, the late great Kobe talking about getting up at four in the morning. Um, I'm interested in grind. I'm interested in energy effort. I'm interested in an incredible attitude every day. I'm interested in uh, nothing but net. I'm interested in beating bulls nonstop. Uh, I'm interested in uh, a relentless intensity towards excellence. However, there are also gold medal winners. There are also major champions. There are also Grand Slam winners. There are also world-class drivers. There are also world-class jockeys. There are also uh, world-breaking swimmers and so on and so forth um, who reach the top of their sport in a more nuanced way, who don't necessarily have the human capacity to do the kind of things that other champions do. And I think we have to be very careful as coaches, as psychologists, as sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches, not to simply discard those people because they don't fit into what might be traditionally uh, seen as the characteristics for developing excellence. Um, I, 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 and I also think you've asked me how I treat science. I, I treat science with respect. And I also, for, for example, I look at the skill acquisition literature and more and more evidence coming out about uh, the quality of practice over the quantity 
of practice, how we help uh, develop the kind of behaviors we want uh, as champions in more of a, a longitudinal way rather than short, sharp bursts of intensity. And I think there's a lot of athletes out there who can't accommodate long bursts of intensity and they have to do it more sensibly. I'm also very mindful of what the psychological science is telling us about the importance of, say, um, athletes having uh, multiple identities not just seeing themselves as i'm john the basketball player i'm emily the uh u.s lacrosse player i'm i, I you know I, I i think it's also about john and emily being a brother a sister um a a a daughter a son a friend a hobbyist who enjoys playing musical instruments as well and studying and going to the zoo that's a random one but i couldn't think of anything else <laughs> Right. But, you know, I'm I'm conscious of um, athletes having that that, that element of multiple identities um, and um, having a life away from what they're doing without compromising on their capacity to get to that where they want to go. And also recognizing that if they want to get to the gold medal, if they want to beat the world record, if they want to get to world number one, there were many ways. There, there were there were quite a few ways to do that, and it's not always about a fixation on grind, sweat, dust, blood. I think that our industry does need to accommodate um, the more nuanced approaches. There's more than one way to win. Yeah, I love saying there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. And I always say, like, there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. Like, you, there, that was an old slogan. I don't know if that made it to the UK, but um, it didn't. So, like, the candy Reese's, that was our slogan, is there's more than one way to eat a Reese's pieces. Um, so, I was like, I could tell that Dan wasn't laughing at that. And I was going to laugh out of it. He's like, what are you talking about? Um, but nuance is, you've said nuance probably five or six times in our conversation. And even when you talked about social media lacking nuance, like, we both love Twitter, for example. Twitter can give you short bursts of wisdom and knowledge, but it mm. lacks nuance. It's interesting because I think the two of us play on Twitter and have a podcast. So for me, Twitter is this opportunity to get these gems and these nuggets of wisdom. And then I go to a podcast for this long form nuanced uh, medium, which I really appreciate. And everybody today thinks that the world is obsessed with the short you know, the, the title and the headline and the tweet, but people are also obsessed with podcasts and long form. And so I think humans crave both. And um, when I hear you say nuance, I also think of like inside out work. And when we coach people, our work is to really understand who they are and help them to develop, to be the best version of them, whatever that may look like. I'm curious for you, when you're actually working with clients, how do you approach that? How do you work with them? Paint that picture for us. What does it look like? Look, I mean, I think, think the first thing to say that I think is a really, really good question because it's not obvious because I think as a sports psychologist, uh, my first port of call is, you know, what am I being brought up? brought in for what 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 is this phone call about um what is this uh zoom session uh for um quite often it is about uh, it is a performance psychology piece but often it's uh, a welfare and well-being piece as well and sometimes those two go neatly hand in hand so you know i'm always trying to ascertain from a client what uh, what what's required from me and what kind of conversation that 
what kind of conversation we're going to have. Um, so, so that's that's definitely my first port of call. Um, if it's look, I mean, I suppose Brian, let me ask you what what are you asking me here? Are you asking me um, to build on the construct of performance psychology, or or if it's a welfare and well being piece? I'm probably more interested in the performance psychology piece. Okay. All right. And and I think this is a neat follow-on from what we've been talking about, because I think if, if if we come back to this notion of how do you win, how do you compete? How do you compete effectively? And I think we can, I think as, as a group of coaches, we can be quite one-dimensional when it comes to um, how we best compete. Whereas I, I just think actually we need to be multi-dimensional. I don't think there's one single way to compete. I think there's 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 lots of ways that people can maximise their capacity to compete. Um, so and, and often I'm working with players to be able to 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 do that to learn how to effectively compete. So what am I doing? Well, that starts that starts with the narrative they have off the pitch or the court or the course. It starts with um, how they're speaking to themselves about competition. Uh, for example, um, quite often what happens when I sit down with a client, when I'm on a Zoom call with a client, um, they their language tends to be very extreme. Um, their language tends to be oriented towards winning and high performance. And I don't think any of those are optimal. So what I'm trying to do is turn down the volume of extreme language, getting away from the musts and the have tos and the uh, catastrophizing. It will be a disaster if I lose. It will be the end of the world. So I'm always looking out for how they're speaking to themselves, the kind of story that they're creating around competition. Um, and then I'm trying to help broaden their perspective of what competition is and where they should focus their attention. As I said, when you ask the question, what are you trying to achieve when you come to game day? More often than not, you'll get the answer, well, I want to win. I have to win. It will be a disaster if I don't win. Or you'll get language around performance. I have to perform. I must perform. It's all about performing. And what I'm trying to do is help an athlete to strip that back a little bit um, and uh, to create more of a performance and mindset process, a performance and mindset process. I think that that is vital. I can speak very confidently that in British soccer, um, so let's think of English Premier League here, um, arguably one of the best uh, leagues in the world, if not the best, almost competitive. Um, I've sat down with a number of very high-profile soccer individuals from the English Premier League the last 15 years. And whenever I've asked them, what are you trying to achieve mentally on the pitch? There's usually tumbleweed floating across the ground. There's just complete silence. They, they, they don't really have any framework, any perspective on what they're trying to achieve mentally. And so I'm trying to help them fill in that missing gap because often they've got you know, they've come to me because they've got low confidence, because they're anxious, because they don't know how to focus correctly. They don't know how to deal with distraction. They don't know how to get into their right mindset or mental states. And if they do, they fall away quite quickly. Um, so those kind of little challenges, I'm trying to help them create a framework to the mental side of their game. Take them away from outcome 
um, help them to rationalize performance and just get more into the mental side. That's what usually I'm trying to do with performance psychology. We're actually going to go to mental health because I, I want to riff on that uh, with you as well a little bit and wellness. But there's something that came up for me as you were talking, which is consistency. And most athletes, I know you also, golf is a big part of, you mentioned being a pro golfer, a big part of how you got interested in the mental side of performance. Consistency and confidence, those two C words, uh, often are why people chat with me. They're like, I, I just need more confidence. If I'm confident, I'll play well, or I'm just inconsistent and I'm not sure why. And when we break consistency down, what you'll notice is there's no such thing as a consistent golfer. There's no golfer that makes every cut. There's no consistent soccer player that scores every single game. Messi, Ronaldo, those guys, okay, they're close, but there are games where they're not going to score. And so to your point about outcome, one of the things that I often talk about with my clients is that consistency is a process. Consistency is more mental. Like how can you be consistent with your mind? And then that leads to more consistent behavior. What are your routines? What are your habits? What are your processes? That's what consistency looks like. It's not consistency of output because we all know the best performers in the world are not consistent with their output. It's just sports isn't designed that way. No one wins every game. No one, you know, in basketball makes all of their shots every game. So um, that was coming up for me as I was hearing you talk. If you want to riff on consistency, I want to open it up to you. And then I'm probably going to pivot to mental health because I think it's an interesting piece for us to discuss as well. I think for me, listening to you there, what I'm thinking first and foremost as a sports psychologist, and I suppose what I was alluding to earlier is classic what we call achievement goal theory which is we can be oriented towards uh, ego uh, and i think when we when we say ego we're, we're really talking about outcome i want to win i mustn't lose uh, but we can also be talking about uh, performance especially the uncontrollable factors so again i'm going to speak in soccer speak here uh, a striker talking about i've got to score i've got to score i've got to score a defender or a goalkeeper talking about got to keep clean sheet got to keep a, a clean sheet and we would we would refer these towards a, an ego orientation but then you've got a, a task or a mastery orientation which again is what i was alluding to and what you've really alluded to there which is the process you know we it's almost cliche now in sports psychology isn't it or mental skills to talk about the process um i don't think there's anything i th I, I think and again, this is where we can come back to nuance. There were clearly times when as a sports psychologist or mental skills coach, you might start having a conversation around outcome um, to help a golfer um, up their activation levels, to have to have a purpose. Funnily enough, Brian, I had a conversation last night with a golfer who's in Italy at the moment playing, competing on a mini tour over there. And he was a little bit lost at sea in terms of his motivation. And it just at that time dawned on me, we need to have actually a conversation around outcome. So we talked about being striving to, do, to execute processes in order to be one under through every three holes. And I usually steer clear of, of, of that kind of talk, but it just felt this golfer needed that. Um, so, so what, and, and what the psychological research suggests is it's, it's uh, not wrong to have an ego orientation at the time, to have ego goals. They just need to be well-placed basically. And um, 
probably uh, rationalized as well. But what you've mentioned, what I was mentioning earlier, is the, the vital component of being task or mastery oriented, having a process. Now, if we were, so let's, let's split up the competitive landscape. Outcome, performance, mindset. Outcome, performance, mindset. Outcome, win, lose, as we've been saying. Uh, performance, you can, you know, you can think of a mark out of 10 uh for your game i was eight out of ten i was excellent i was 10 out of 10 i was uh, outstanding or you could think of performance in terms of a b c d when i work with golfers i talk about their a b c d game when i play work with tennis players the same a b c d game when i work with soccer players or basketball players it's more of a scale of one to ten uh i just find that works a little bit better um and then and then we've got mindset and i think we can have a scale of one to ten there as well i'm talking to players about helping them um, articulate their high performance mindset, an eight, a nine, a 10 out of 10 mindset. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What are you doing? What does that process look like? Does it look like great self-talk? Is it something to do with your body language? Are you coming up with a couple of Q or key or trigger words that you can utilize that are adjectives that that uh, that the reflect who you want to be, like sharp, alert, alive, lively, relentless, dominant, calm, cool, relaxed. Um, uh, we can talk about having what I call a match script, which is um, basically breaking down your performance into a couple of controllable factors. And I think that that's the performance side that, that sports people can focus on, can think about, as long as it's controllable, specific, and positive um so you're just trying to help for me you're trying to help players rationalize outcome focus on the controllable factors within performance uh, like runs and movements and actions that are actually controllable and then have a specific mindset process self-talk body language um attentional cues uh confidence cues anything like that that's that that to me is 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 where I'm trying to help athletes focus going into a game. If they've got that framework, we then talk about executing that framework on game day. It's absolutely imperative to execute that game, uh, framework on game day. Nothing and no one takes me away from that framework. Nothing and no one. If I'm going to if I if I want athletes to engage in extreme language, it's that they're doing that around the mental process because it's something that they can get closer to controlling uh, i think that's important when you say nothing and no one you're referencing the environment the situation the circumstance a referee whatever fans it, the, those external factors and to me that is trusting your process uh and that is like all right the process of how do i want to show up that when i think of process i think of how and that's the how, like, how do I want to show up? Going back to the golfer that you had play every three holes, I've done that with golfers as well. And we'll actually have them draw lines on their scorecard every three holes. And for those that don't know, 18 holes in a golf round. So you've got six basically matches for them to compete within. And what it does for golfers is it allows them to release and to let go of what the first three holes were, the next three holes or the next three holes. You and I both know that ideally the best golfers in the world usually uh, will play shot to shot instead of three holes at a time. But to me, I think 
that ability to have mental toughness or to be able to recover. If we can get it to three holes at a time, that's better than nine holes, which a lot of amateur golfers do. All right, front nine, back nine. Um, if we can get that to three holes, that's probably a leg up. And then if we can get it hole to hole, that's probably better than every three holes. And if we can get it shot to shot, then we're really in that process. So that's one thought I had. And the second I had was, uh, my book is all about your mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. And one of the ones we talk about is to use analysis in preparation so that you can leverage instinct in performance to experiment in preparation so you can trust process in performance. And I think it's important because you're right. We do need to analyze. We do need to look at the data. Like, I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is a really interesting case study right now of somebody who is an N of one on the tour, um, but he's using data in a way that's that's changing the game. He also has the ability to hit the ball a mile, um, but he's worked his ass off to get to that level and talk about obsession versus another way of greatness. I forgot who finished second in that major. You might, you, you probably follow golf a little more. Was it Matt Wolf? Yes. So it was fascinating because Matt came off the course and they asked him, you know, uh, what were you doing during COVID? And he's like, ah, I didn't really lift weights much. I didn't really do anything. And then DeChambeau saying, I lift every single day. Uh, so talk about nuance. You had two different examples of how they were approaching and they finished one, two um, in, in, in that major. Um, so that was fascinating to me. But I think about this idea of we have to be real. Sports is evaluated. It is judged. There is a score. It does matter. And I love what you were saying earlier about having perspective. I think perspective allows us to get lost in the process. And when we come back and are studying film or we're preparing, that's where we really want to use that analytical mind and really experiment and break it down. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but for me, that framework helps me understand the when of when analyzing is really helpful, when looking at outcome is really helpful. I think looking at outcome in our preparation can be massive, even knowing how far do I hit this shot or where do I need to be on the on the field or the pitch and when did I screw up? Like spending time in that critical space is a great way for us to learn. It's this is a tough conversation to have. Again, I'm going to come back to nuance because everybody's different, but we can create some parameters. I'm, I'm going to use the word language here. I, I think language around outcome, language around performance, and language around mindset. These three form the, these three factors, okay? If we're talking about competition, outcome, performance, mindset, we need a different language for each one. And that might change week to week. You've used the term consistency. I want to come back to DeChambeau because I've got something to say about DeChambeau, having been a pro golfer. Um, but we need a language around outcome. And it's not always going to say stay the same. So if you take the golfer I, I was talking with last night, going into his round today, we've spent a lot of time uh, working on talking about language around just letting the outcome take care of itself. And as I mentioned, and as you've done in your practice, split it up into three holes. So have a bit more of a, an outcome orientation, a bit more of what we might call an ego orientation, just to, just to turn up the volume of his, of his motivation, of his purpose. 
I think the language around performance is really interesting, especially when we're talking about consistency. And I'm going to come back to that scale of one to 10, and that's A, B, C, D. Again, I know, Brian, you've worked with a lot of golfers, and I think we've probably together had this conversation in the past, is, is that a big, a big part of uh, the capacity to play consistent golf or improve your consistency in golf is your capacity to deal with your C game. It's, and it's still the capacity to deal with your A game. You know, if we if we categorize this as one's A game in golf, and you can refer this to tennis as well, is when you're excellent to good or good to excellent. If a B game is good to average, if a C game is average to poor, if a D game is poor to very poor. And when I'm talking about A, B, C, D, I'm talking about how your golf swing feels, how you're striking the ball, how under control the ball feels and how far you're hitting it. Those four performance factors, essentially, A, B, C, D. When you're on your, when you're on your A game as a golfer, there's a lot going on in your mind. And you start, you can get halfway around. If you're a pro golfer, you can be six, seven under par, five, four, five, six, seven under par. And it's like, wow. Oh, and you start to have what I call ANTS, A-N-T-S, automatic negative thoughts. Don't mess this up. Just get to the end. Uh, I've got a tough bat nine. Just try and get, just try and get into that, to the 18th hole. Just try and par in. Also, you know, some, something like that. You can have all kinds of, of thoughts and I'm trying not to swear on your, on your podcast. Go ahead, so I won't. Go ahead. No, no. So, 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 um, you, and, and that has a behavioral thing is you start to steer and you start to guide it. You start to prod it down the middle, which is a big, big problem. So, so you, you, you've got to be able to be a great manager of your A game. And when you can become a great manager of your A game and you're a great player and you're playing on tour or oh, you can win some dough, you can win some serious money. If you're a great manager of your C game, that's also important. I always challenge golfers, can you go under par on your C game? Can you go under when you're slightly off? You're not quite there. Your timing's a bit off. Your swing feels a bit dodge. Feel like a bit, bit like an octopus falling out of a tree type scenario where you look like it anyway. You know, it's just not there. And um, uh, you've got to be able to keep Swinging with confidence, swinging with commitment, swinging freely. You've got to stick in your game face. You've got to keep that self-talk strong. You've got to turn down the volume of ants, the automatic negative thoughts. You've got to be able to get the most from your C game. So, so then you're, you know, that's your mindset. That's your mindset process. But the language you've got to, have, in my opinion, got. I say you've got to. Um, in my opinion, the most useful language going into a game of golf is my job on the course is to play my A game and to get the most for my A B C D game. I might be playing on my C game, and that's okay. I've got to very quickly accept that and stick to my mental process, and nothing and no one takes me away from my mental process. If we were to go over to a team invasion sport, and I was using a scale of one to ten. I'm going to use that scale of one to 10 to help um, the players rationalize their performance. So I work with a lot of, as I've said, soccer players over here. For me, a 10 out of 10 is an outstanding performance. A nine out of 10 is excellent. Eight out of 10 is is good. Seven out of 10 is 
uh, is, is just below good. Six out of 10 is average. It's okay to be on average. It's okay to make a few mistakes. Okay, you're a human being. Um, it, it, it's just simply impossible to play a very, very tough game like soccer and other team invasion sports without making mistakes, without having a few hiccups here and there. But you have to have a language on the pitch or on the court that says, okay, I'm on six out of 10. That's okay. Just stick to my mental process. Otherwise, six out of 10 starts to drive five out of 10, that starts to drive four out of 10, and you spiral downwards. I want I want players to have the capacity when they're on the pitch or on the field or on the court to be able to rationalise where they are right now. Right, I'm six out of ten. That's okay. Stick to my game face. Keep using my self-talk. Keep being positive. Positive body language. Keep being aggressive. Keep being sharp, alert, alive, lively. Whatever it is they've got to say to themselves to be able to at least stay at six or climb. At least stay at six or climb. That to me is the language around performance, if that makes sense. Sure does. Um, Dan, you want to come in now? Do you want yeah. me to talk about Shambo? Um, you can go into Shambo. It's more interesting, probably, than the question I was going to ask. Go, go to Shambo. No, I, I was only going to be a minute. No, I think I just think I look. You know what? I think Shambo is a fascinating case. And I, again, I say this: having been a pro golfer, having been a PGA qualified golf coach, having been lead site for England golf. I mean, when I was lead site for England golf, 2013, 2016. Uh, we produce some pretty good golfers over here and have done over the years um, and not at the same volume as the US, but, you know, we, we still punch pretty, pretty hard in, in international golf. And we were trying to push through uh, a lot of S&C stuff at the time. Uh, and I still think they, they're still trying to do that. What's, what's, uh, uh, you mean strength uh, and conditioning? Strength, strength and conditioning, sorry. Strength and conditioning uh, for golf. And there's, there's still a lot of pushback or there has historically been with golfers. And and it's often because golfers historically have damaged their swing as a consequence of a lot of gym work. Um, not all of them, but a lot have. So what I think there's a couple of interesting things about DeChambeau. Number one, he had an opportunity that may never arise again, which was COVID. Like everybody's off the golf course and to take four months off and to do what he did, that is, it was an incredible opportunity that he took advantage of. Let's make no bones about that, that he took advantage of, but he had that opportunity where others didn't take advantage of it. The second thing is just his analytical intelligence. Um, which has been there for a while. I mean, which, he's been talking about yeah. it for a while. Absolutely. And this whole game is based around um, club know, fitting, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the physics of the swing and, and stuff like that stuff. I only started getting into when I started to coach the game years ago, but there's a difference between a golfer who goes into the gym with a, with an, a strength and conditioning coach and is um, a recipient of strength and conditioning and Bryson DeChambeau, who is a participant in strength and conditioning. And when I say that, I really mean a participant. I mean, he is pr very probably getting heavily involved in the process. Um, he, he, his procedural knowledge is through the roof there. So there seems, so there's two advantages at play. Number one, when he's done it with this artificial period because of COVID. And number two, just because of, of his procedural knowledge, just because he's essentially probably worked it out mostly himself, probably with 
a strength and conditioning expert, but he's been a real participant rather than just a recipient, which, oh, look, we could go off on all kinds of tangents there, but that seems to be a working advantage that, that he's used that uh, other golfers are kind of scratching their heads going, well, how can I keep up with that? It's a, it's a fascinating landscape. And, and you just wonder how much, I suppose the last point here, a slightly controversial point maybe for us is how much because of his distance has he taken some of the psychology out of the game for himself? Because he is now in such an approach mode uh, in terms of he's just standing on the tee and his sole job is to hit it as far as he can. Until they start layering the rough higher at the 350 mark, and I mean really layering the rough to the point where he has no advantage, he just stands there and he's just going to send it as far as he can. And in a way, when you're in that kind of mode, that what we would call approach rather than avoidant, um, then it almost feels like he's peeling away some of the psychological challenge of the game. Not all of it, but some of it. It's a fascinating landscape. Oh, it's amazing. And I think about those that are legends and they often transform the game in some way. And he's not the first golfer. I mean, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, whenever it was that Tiger came bursting onto the scene, yeah. no one was Tiger. He was built. He was fit. He took strength and conditioning more serious than seemingly anybody that he was competing against. And you know, he was, he was different and I'm not comparing the two because the one big question also with DeChambeau is sustainability. And, you know, will he, will he be sustainable with this? We just don't know. I think of Rory McIlroy too. I mean, Rory was really big into strength and conditioning when he first started and was bulked up and super strong, could hit the ball far and swing speed and all that stuff. And it's interesting around Rory because Rory also has, you know, created these bunkers in his outside his house and his practice. And he also is reading psychologic psychology books. And I'm fascinated by golfers. And it, it strikes me that as you're talking that you've created different processes and systems or um, ways to work with golfers and then ways to work with soccer players. And let's just use those two sports. I know you work with other sports as well. Yep. I, I'm curious for you. Um, what are the similarities that you notice? Because you're, you're sort of saying, Hey, the scoring difference is a little different one through 10 versus ABCD. What are similarities that you might notice that are, are you talk about personality and motivation at the very beginning of this conversation? Are there any things, anything that you notice between the individual sport athlete um, versus a team athlete? Is there anything that you change when you're working with a golfer versus a soccer player? What you actually have talked about the changes. What are the similarities that are the common threads that you find when working with those types of athletes? Uh, I think the number one common thread is this notion of self-regulation. Uh, I don't, I think it doesn't matter the sport sport is about control um I, I i'm not saying it's not about anything else clearly uh it you know sport is multi-dimensional you know it's about higher stronger you know further faster etc etc but but uh, underpinning those is the capacity to take control of oneself obviously the difference between say soccer and golf is in, in golf you either view it as i have to take charge of myself for four hours um, um or i have to have moments over the course of four hours 
uh, where I have to take charge of myself, as in every golf shot, rather than let the golf shot take control of me. Uh, whereas in soccer, 90 minutes game, 95 minutes with injury time, approximately, um, I have to take charge of myself for 95 minutes. Um, so, uh, you know, length of time and pace of play, uh, open, close sports skills, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, aside, uh, control, the control piece, self-control is, is still the same. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but the language around outcome, performance uh, and mindset still the same in as much as we need to um, be uh, rational around, more rational around outcome and performance for both uh, and uh, tougher on ourselves um, and perhaps more rigid and perhaps more extreme around uh, mindset process. Um, so language, self-regulation, both very, very similar. I find in my own practice, and I can only speak for myself, Brian, there are, if we take soccer and golf, and obviously we've got, you know, one self-paced in essence, you know, another one is uh, much more instinctive. One is individual sport, one is team sport you know, quite different sports, but quite often I'll talk to players about similar techniques related to mental skills. So both can use, utilize self-talk, both can utilize embodied skills. So body language, how I hold myself, how I walk using breathing, um, et cetera, et cetera, anything around my body. Um, both require, I think, uh, competitors to find their uh, high performance mindset or uh, optimal performance state, uh, a, a mental state that you can climb into that helps you. Um, both require some form of management of thoughts, negative thinking, if you like. I call them ants, as I've alluded to earlier, automatic negative thoughts, whether that's using more of an ACT approach, acceptance commitment therapy, which is, hey, thoughts will come in, feelings will come in, that's okay, you can't control that, just ignore them and carry on with the game, or whether you're more active directive, so you're using, say, self-talk to turn down the volume of ants, to squash the ants. So I think what I'm trying to say here is there's a lot of similarities in terms of goal achievement, the language, the, the self-regulation piece, some of the skills that you can use, although I'm, I'm throwing Dan Abraham's colloquialisms at you there. Um, but obviously there can be some, there is some differentiation in terms of you know the pace of the game and the psychological challenges as a consequence of the pace of the game and plus a team game i mean you you work with golfers and you'll join me in in appreciating how challenging golf can be from a psychological perspective i would also add to that here we go nuance again ultimately you're out there on your own you've only got yourself to take care of in many respects you know that ball is stationary and i understand 
that's what can make the game quite hard that the ball is stationary, but it's not moving. So you haven't got a projectile moving at you or across you or whatever. You haven't got opponents that you've got to deal with and you haven't got teammates that you've got to build some kind of rapport with, foster some kind of relationship with. You know, it's really just you. If you're lucky enough to be on tour, you'll have a caddy, but it's out, you out there on your own. You know, and I can pay my entrance fee, whatever tour I'm, I'm, I'm qualified to compete on. I pay my entrance, entrance fee. I go and play. Well, in soccer, in basketball, in baseball, in, in, in American football, if I can call it that, you know, you're on, you're on the team sheet or you're not. You're on the roster. You're not. And you've got to be able to deal with that. You know, and, and there's a lot of dynamics around that here, certainly in the UK. And I would imagine it would be exactly the same in the team sports in, in the States as well. Um, um, and, and your capacity to build uh, uh, cohesively, uh, cohesively uh, uh, match up uh, from a task perspective, from a social perspective, those, those are like social challenges. So uh, I wouldn't automatically draw uh, a conclusion that individual sports are more psychological than team sports, um, that they, are, they both have their psychological challenges for sure. It's interesting. I get asked all the time, what's the most mental sport? And I turn to the person and I say, whatever sport you play. Because yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked with athletes in so many different sports. And I can think about the ones that would be most challenging for me. Mm. But the reality is the wrestler, the reason it's so challenging is the wrestler put in all this work and they've prepared and now they have to go execute same with the soccer player, same with the golfer. It, like they've, they feel like they've earned the right to perform well. Most of the time, most athletes put in work and they put additional stress sometimes as a result of that. And that's why the mental side comes up. I also believe and have conviction in the more you do something, the more mental it becomes. What, Cause once you develop the technical and physical skills, then it's about executing and your mind will either hinder you or help you to unlock that piece. So that's why you often hear pro athletes say that it's all mental. It's not all mental to play on the PGA tour to get to the PGA tour. You better have a pretty amazing swing and you better be physically gifted, talented, whatever you want to say, but for them to unlock their gifts and their physical abilities, that's where it becomes more mental. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I want to dive into the mental health piece. I, I played golf last week with a former professional soccer player. He played 10 years, major league soccer, played for the U S national team. Um, and a high activity energy guy plays golf once or twice a year. So he does not have the game down. And it was fascinating playing with him because you could see him. He's, he's high energy. He's at active, but now we're asking him to slow down and hit the little white ball. And he's also very inclusive. Like he's the guy that loves being part of something bigger than himself and brings people into it and made a career of being like, that type of player. And it was fascinating seeing him on the golf course. Cause by the 15th hole, he was exhausted. He was done. And if you've ever played golf before, you know what that feels like when you're on the 15th hole and you're like, why is this sport 18 holes? This, this sport should be 15, maybe 12. Cause you're, you're spent. And so watching the emotional, um, 
exhaustion take place as well was really interesting because this is a guy who could run around a soccer field for hours. Most soccer players, football players, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. they run like nine or 10 miles or eight miles in a game. Like it's pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. People don't realize the physical exhaustion that gets expended for a lot of soccer players and they track this stuff. I mean, we're talking getting close to like a half marathon when they're playing a game. I mean, it is physically just so grueling. So it's interesting to hear how you think about soccer and golf. Literally, I just had that experience with him and I was thinking about that. Um, And and so feel free to riff on that. And I want to dive into mental health as well. So um, we're at a point in American society where we have pro athletes talking about challenges. We had DeMar DeRozan in the NBA. We had Kevin Love. Uh, When the NBA was in the bubble, Paul George was talking about dealing with depression. We recently had Dak Prescott, um, you know, the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys say that he was dealing with depression. Michael Phelps has been open with it. Uh, You know, there have been a number of athletes who have spoken up about their mental health challenges. And one of the things that I'm very curious about as a society, as we continue to embrace and not shame people for opening up about their challenges. And most people now are supportive and, and cheering them on and saying good for you and, and, and saying that those people are courageous. I start to notice with young athletes and young people in general, the acceptance, if we're talking about act, acceptance and commitment theory or therapy The acceptance is now getting there. Like we're moving towards the accepting of, yes, this isn't something you should hide. We need to bring this out to the forefront. What I am not hearing discussed enough is, all right, once you acknowledge it, now what are you doing to to make yourself better other than going and seeing a therapist? And my concern for our society is that we just stop with, okay, you're anxious. And then we just normalize it to a point where everyone's saying, I'm anxious, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. And we're not actually helping people develop a game plan or a roadmap so that they don't just stay stuck as like a victim. They can actually create processes to get better and healthy and healthier. And the rates on suicide are not great right now. Um, You know, I haven't checked them in maybe the last year, but you know, it's not going down. And so I say all that to say, like, I'd love to get your perspective because it's not my expertise. I don't work in the on the clinical side. I've had a ton of clients that I refer out to. I just referred somebody last week to a psychologist to, to help them. So when I notice it, I, I can flag it. And then I say to the person, hey, let's get you some help. But I, I'm wondering how in the future, and this might need to happen 10 years from now, maybe the first thing we need to do is acknowledge it, accept it. But how do we create that second piece of then creating a commitment process and and making that more accessible, available to people to help them not just live with that anxiety every day, but to actually get closer to flourishing and thriving? Oh, where do I start? Um, I'll try and make my answer as linear as I can, but as you've detected already from the podcast, I can be a little bit non-linear and a bit all over the place. But I'll, I'll do my best here. And, and like you, Brian, I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a sports psychologist, and uh, I have to refer on for serious clinical issues. But I think that's where I start. Is we also I hear everything you're saying, and I agree with you. And as I I answer this question, you'll you'll 
you'll see and appreciate that I, I agree with you. I do want to start with a word of warning um, because we do need to be careful as well around definitions, especially low mood versus clinical depression. Because I suspect, and I'm going to say this with 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 no evidence as such, other than uh, uh, perhaps um, a gut feeling and being in and around. Again, I, I'm going to refer to say soccer in the UK, United Kingdom. Here is that there are players who are are coming out and talking about um, mental health challenges. Um, and I just wonder sometimes if if it's actually more oriented towards welfare and well-being, and they're suffering from ill-being rather than serious clinical mental health challenges. And there's all kinds of theories of on you know is is well-being on the same continuum as ill-being? Is well-being and ill-being what's their relationship with mental health? And you can speak to lots of different sports psychologists who will give you lots of different answers. So it, it's not great, but what, what I, the first thing I want to say is it, it's not this is certainly not being cynical and it's certainly not being skeptical because the mental health piece is very very important it's understanding that uh, severe clinical depression is severe clinical depression you don't want to have severe clinical depression I can assure you people won't get out of bed for two or three days people can't pay their bills because they don't have the energy they don't have the energy to feed themselves and we do need to get to a point where we disseminate between that and low mood because low mood isn't nice either it really really isn't but we need to it might be that the next one of the next steps brian is for each governing body um whether that's the nfl or the nba whether it's the uh english fa english football association whatever governing body governs one sport uh, helps coaches to understand the difference between, say, a clinical depression and low mood. Because I wonder if there's some athletes coming out and saying, well, I suffer from depression when it's actually low mood. And 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 I don't think that that's helpful for starters. I understand why that's happening. And it might be we have to go through that phase. Um, and that right now, that as, as, as human beings within, within sporting populations, that's where we're at. And we have to go through that phase before we go into the next level of better diagnosis and, and better definition. So and, that, Dan, that, and Dan, yeah. w- the flip side too, like sometimes we think things are low mood and they're actually like depression and they're, of course. they're more severe. And I, I've seen that. Like I, I was like, oh, I, I thought they're this. And then it's like, wait a second, this is actually this is actually more serious and, 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 you know, this needs more attention. I think it, it, it definitely goes both ways as well. Uh, a million, million percent. The second thing I, I, I want to say, so I'm going to say three things here. Definition, which I've just covered there, human functioning and sporting environment. So number two, human functioning. Low mood happens to you. Depression happens to you. The emphasis is on the word happen. Anxiety happens to you. Um, A loss of energy, a drop in confidence, worry, doubt, uh, negative, any kind of negative feeling happen to you. People don't choose these things. And if I may say, 
and maybe this is the point I do get a bit controversial, is sport in, let's call it the Western world, we are a little bit obsessed with this word choose. We're a little bit obsessed with attitude is a choice, energy is a choice, uh, effort is a choice, effort isn't always a choice. I'm really sorry, but it is not a choice. Attitude is, if one could simply choose 100% attitude all the time, then you'd simply choose 100% attitude. Uh, can we develop skills that help us uh, make attitude more of a choice? Absolutely. But if we're simply going to be locked into, well, this is a choice. So when you come into our sporting culture, our sporting environment, then you have to choose it. If we're going to externalize locus of control onto players, onto our, uh, onto the, the players within our team, in our organization, and, it, and we make them solely accountable for that without us as coaches, us as organizations helping that to happen. I'm kind of getting onto my third point a little bit there. That's just not good enough to me. We have to have a clearer understanding of how human beings function in general. So I repeat again, these things, negative affect, affect means emotion, happens to us. We don't choose these things. That, that, that I'm, not, I'm not saying people don't, don't act badly or poorly. I'm not saying people don't make poor decisions. It's not to say that there are not bad agents in this world. It's not to say there's not high school and college basketball players, baseball players, American football, soccer, lacrosse, who, who are uh, occasionally acting in a maladaptive way on purpose or could control themselves better than they're, they're, than they're doing but it is understanding the human condition and it's and the social historical context of sport in the UK the US especially and maybe across parts of Europe is well just get on with it you know just come in if you're going to come into a culture you've got to have a great attitude and we waggle our finger and we point and and we we maybe we shout or maybe we say it quite vociferously it's up to you it's up to you it's up to you well that brings me on to my third point so so number two human human the human condition how humans function these things happen to us which brings on me on to, on to my third point is i think it's incumbent on our sporting organizations um whether that's high school college professional to um, have the best processes in place to help human beings optimize their engagement, their participation, um, progress and perform. And for me, that requires, a, that requires a psychologically informed environment, P, I, E, P for psycho psychologically, I for informed, E for environment, a pie, a psychologically informed environment. That is vital. In a psychologically informed environment, the coaching staff take into account the thoughts, feelings, experiences, and personalities of their players when they're having conversations about them and making decisions for them. For me, it, it having a pie, a psychologically informed environment, is about having great conversations. So policies and processes and practices are put in place that helps players have the best possible engagement, participation, that helps them progress, grow, 
and 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 perform and within that pie there's two other things to say there number one no i'll go i'll go i'll go this way number one culture okay we're a little bit fixated on culture being about shared values and shared uh, anything that's shared and i'm not saying that that's wrong but it's more nuanced than that actually the anthropology basically culture comes from anthropology and the and the anthropological approach towards culture studying culture is not just what's shared it's what's different it's not just celebrating what's shared it's celebrating what's different and this falls neatly goes neatly hand in hand with our pie our psychologically informed environment is we also need to celebrate what's different with our people in our organization you know not just we've got to share this we've got to, it's about appreciating different personalities different needs wants hopes doubts beliefs hopes uh, i said hopes twice i think cultures um um races genders etc etc uh, views of the world it's it, it's celebrating what's shared and what's different and then the third thing with that is providing psychological safety that classic work by amy edmondson it's the psychological safety piece that is so important and this falls neatly in terms of the participation piece engaging our players helping players progress so get better at their sport and grow and then the performance piece we can't help players perform if we're not helping them express vulnerability within our psychologically informed environment. If we're not giving them the space to talk about what makes them anxious and to share it with everybody else. Um, if we're not giving them, uh, if, if we're not getting into small and large groups and, and sharing best and worst practice, uh, what helps us, what hinders us etc etc i think a psychologically informed environment is 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 vital and i think that psychological safety within that environment is is absolutely crucial and shared and um, shared practices as well as different practices within a single culture Man, oh man, I was ready for psychological safety because as you were describing Pia, that's where my mind was going. Yeah. Uh, Google did a really cool study where they wanted to find out, well, who makes up our best teams and who, you know, who should we be recruiting? And what they found instead was that it's actually not about the who, it's about, you know, what the team is and what the culture is and starting with psychological safety and, and the teams that were psychologically safe were the ones that could outperform those that, that lack that. Um, there's one piece in what you just talked about that I want to riff on a little bit because it might be confusing to people, which is that you talk about attitude and effort not being in your control. And the way I think about this is, we have primary thoughts and primary feelings. I get crazy thoughts all the time. I have weird feelings all the time. If someone came into my house right now with a gun, I would have an emotional feeling that I don't believe I have control over. So I think Viktor Frankl was, was great with this, where he talked about the space between you know thought and action. And, yep. and so to me, how the framework I use, and it, it leverages acceptance, commitment theory, it le uh, leverages mindfulness as well, but thoughts and feelings out of our control. 
we don't control our primary thoughts and feelings. If you believe in God, you might believe that they came from God. If you don't believe in God, you don't maybe have a framework for where they come from. Either way, science does not suggest that we control our primary thoughts and primary feelings. Then how we interpret those thoughts and feelings that's where I think we gain the free will. That's where we gain the capacity to then decide what attitude we want to show up with. And that space between thought and behavior, that's, that's where I love to live is how are we interpreting the thoughts? How are we interpreting those feelings? When are they hindering us? When are they helping us? When are they, when are they useful and when are they not? And one of the big distinctions I've been making for a while now is I don't talk about positive self-talk with my clients. We don't talk about positive self-talk. We talk about useful self-talk. What's useful for you? Because sometimes being negative can be useful, um, you know, depending on what the time is and, and what they're doing and what the task is. Um, so at any rate, I'd love to, for you to hear your framework and how you think about when is it that we do gain control? I think you mentioned skills um, as an opportunity. Okay, we can use skills in these moments, but how do you think about thoughts, feelings. I use the term thinking. So I make a distinction between thoughts and thinking that thoughts are out of our control, but how we think that's where we gain our control. But these are all distinctions for me that, that make sense. I'd be curious to learn what makes sense for you. No, I love what you've just said there about thoughts and thinking. And, and, and funnily enough, um, Brian, I actually, uh, when I work with a player coming away from coaches and organizations, when I work with a player in any, any sport, I, that, that distinction I actually um, describe as the difference between thinking and self-talk, um, that your thoughts happen to you, you do your self-talk. So I'm the golfer walking onto the first tee and I think, oh, wow, that's a tight hole. There's a thought, right? Now I can choose to talk back to that thought. And, 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 and look, absolutely. I, I, I think that um, I think a lot of coaches listening in might think, oh, well, but that's not helpful. I mean, I've had one very prominent coach said, damn, but it, 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 this isn't helpful saying that they can't control their, their, can't control their attitude, their thoughts and their feelings. Uh, and for me, it's the most helpful thing that you can do as a coach because human beings seriously can't. These thoughts, these feelings, these sensations emerge from our body. You know, it's why some days we feel lethargic or flat or down or despondent, anxious and worried and doubting. And I think we have to normalize those until we start to um, speak like this. We can't normalize those sensations. Let's normalize those sensations. Why not on day one? When, when, when the college students are enrolling and they're sitting in front of you as a coach saying, you're going to have doubts and worries and, and, and uh, days where you, you feel a bit flat and a bit low. Our job as coaching staff is to, is to help you to help yourself, is to help you develop the skills to be able to deal with some of those thoughts and feelings coaching is a negotiation and it's a co-creation you know it's not just a top-down instruction that can be part of it absolutely being uh, a great coach being an authoritative 
coach uh, means that you have a knowledge that your players don't have and you want to impart that knowledge. Uh, of course, direct instruction, top-down instruction, of course there needs to be guides and rules uh, and, and behavioral norms within your culture. I'm not saying that that's not true and that they're not necess necessary, but within that, we have to accept um, um, these uh, behavioral differences and the fact that uh, there's vulnerability out there. So let's make sure our, our coaching practice accommodates that. And again, it's, it, it, it's, it, it comes into the language we use and the communication we have. If I'm a college coach, the first thing I'm saying is exactly what I've said. You're going to have these crazy thoughts. You know, you're going to have days when you feel down. We're here to help you with that. You know, we're, our door is open. Let's have a conversation. I'm never going to insist that you can control your attitude. But we're going to negotiate and we're going to co-create tools, techniques, skills to help you deal with those. And then we're going to monitor this. And there are, there are, you know, there are going to be days where I'm insistent that you pick yourself up. There are going to be days when I have to I reinforce and remind you of what your responsibilities are. But those days are, are smothered in all the skills that we're going to introduce into our environment. Um, so I, th I think that I, I can only but agree with, with uh, what you said about primary thoughts and emotions. I suppose I'll give you one challenge or nuance away from that which comes let's say from personality science is that ultimately there's four pretty much 40 our personality is context specific but personality is both overt and hidden and um we are who we are and how much shift we can get away from who we are is debatable you know, and so if I'm a if I'm a massive introvert and I struggle on a social level, okay, and I'm being asked to do certain things by my coach, that's going to de-energize me at times. If those so if if they're you know hefty social things, and that's where I need my coaching staff to negotiate with me and co-create solutions with me and understand that sometimes I can't do those things, possibly, probably. Um, I need that understanding because there's a great debate in psychology. How much shift can you get, you know, uh, uh, from people? How much shift can you get? I would urge coaches to see coaching as anthropological and ethnographical, meaning coaching is as much a study and a, a study of humans, uh, a practice in guiding humans and alongside your normal coaching practice, your X's and your O's. And those two things collide. Um, and that's what I think great coaches do is I think they get it right anthropologically, ethnographically alongside the X's and the O's. That's just a beautiful place for us to start to wind down here. Before we do, this podcast is called Intentional Performers. Is there anything that you intentionally do to make sure you're at your best, um, anything that you focus on, you take care of to make sure that when you're working with a team or working with an individual that you're at your best? Yeah. 
Um, so I'm going to again, I'm again, I'm going to borrow from personality science. I test on a, on a big five personality test, um, which has been shown to be scientifically pretty reliable, which measures your levels of introversion, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, uh, conscientiousness, um, and neuroticism. So the five major characteristics that we have. Um, I test pretty introverted and it's something I have to intentionally deal with every day, especially in my consultancy practice. I've got to, I've got to really try to talk a few seconds ago about how much shift can you get um, as a, as somebody who tests pretty introverted. Um, it takes an enormous amount of energy for me to um, be a sports psychologist, an effective sports psychologist at some times when I need peace and quiet, when I need to recharge my energy levels. Um, a day can be long for me. And so I intentionally have to deal with that. I have to use, I have to practice what I preach. I have to use all of my techniques to be able to myself talk, my body language. Uh, I have to put on a game face and I have to fight through that. Uh, I have to be skillful through it and perhaps sometimes I have to fight through it. And sometimes I fail through that. Um, so um, I have to be very intentional with that. Um, I'm a big believer in personality science. I, I, I think it's something that's not used enough. And I think if people understand themselves better, I don't think that's pigeonholing yourself. I don't think that's a negative. I think it's just understanding, you know, how your hormones uh, work in your body and what that means behaviorally for you and how you're going to, and then you can come up with strategies to deal with that. I think that's a realistic proposition rather than the unrealistic proposition of you can be anything you want to be. I don't think that's true. I think you have a better chance to optimize your capacity and your ability if you know who you are, how that helps, how that hinders, and what you've got to do with the characteristics that um, hinder you. It's really great. I've been fascinated about fascinated by personality assessments and um to your point historically it was your personality set once you're at a certain age it's not going to change i'm certified in two two personality assessment tools that i use with my clients i created my own uh, as well um I, maybe it's the optimist in me or the belief in development that i i definitely have also read the science that says no this stuff is not set and you can change it. But to your point, I think regardless of where you stand on either of those, both both sides of the argument would agree that awareness of your personality is, is something that can help you. And just by being aware, then from that space, you can either manage it or you can change it. And, um, you know, I think either one of those is, is helpful and healthy for all of us to, to step into. So whenever I use those assessment tools, I always say, look, A, take this with a grain of, grain of salt because they're taking something very nuanced and turning it into something that is very tangible and, and trying to sort of put you into a quote unquote box. Um, and let's take this information and then have a dialogue and a discussion about what you do with them. And I see that you're jumping out of your seat. So feel free to jump in there. No, no, I'm just, I, I just, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I think, um, you know, or I know in personality science, uh, the scientists would talk about a typical response. 
it's a typical response but you know but if you take some of the leading uh, scientists in this area say dan mcadams at northwestern colin de Jong at minnesota you know so it's two of the world world's leaders i mean uh, colin de Jong is on record as saying he's seen 80 percent variants you can get an 80 percent shift here whatever that looks like in any given dimension um so that's quite strong um you know dan mcadams in his brilliant book the 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 science of personality lays out how personality can shift over the lifetime in accordance to your environment, in accordance to your experiences. Nobody's saying that it, it, it can't, and I'm certainly saying uh, that it can't. But I think that that, to me, you optimize your capacity to shift by having a good conversation with somebody. I mean, I, I dare say, Brian, this is why you came up with your own one and why you're certified in two, because it improves your conversations with your clients. You can have more robust conversations and you can, you can actually, it's not about saying this is who you are. It's about saying this is likely your typical response. You know, whether that's biologically driven uh, or psychologically driven or a bit of both, which I think is where we're at with this, with, with the evidence is, you know, now we can now we can work out how you can deal with that, how you can shift when you need to and what you need to do when you need to take a break, be by yourself. Uh, turn down the volume of neuroticism, turn up the volume of optimism, be a bit more agreeable, be a bit less agreeable. I mean, agreeableness is a huge dimension there. You know, for a coach, there's probably coaches out there who actually score quite high on agreeableness, but there's times as a coach where you've got to be low agreeable and vice versa. Coaches who score heavily low agreeable, and a lot do, some are household names, probably would do well to be able to know that and then learn how to be able to shift that so that they're a bit more agreeable at times with some people. So, so I think that that's, it's a typical response leading to better conversations. It's huge. I have a bunch of executives that I coach and we, we do themes every month. I bring together the executives and we do a Zoom call. And one of the common themes that I'm hearing is that they are people pleasers. And like a lot of my clients will say, I'm a people pleaser. And as a result, I can't confront some of the people I manage and help them in that way. And it gets in the way a lot of times. And then you and I both know that if you're just always disagreeing, you know, nobody wants to just be around a contrarian all the time. It, it turns into argumentative. And for me, that's something that I've had to do a lot of work on because I think my first instinct, how I'm wired or how I was nurtured or probably the combination of both is definitely to disagree. It, it is like my first place to go to is to disagree. And I have to not mute that side of me, but I need to turn the volume down because what it keeps me from doing is learning because it keeps me in what I disagree in my conviction and it keeps me from my curiosity. And one of the things I'm really good at is when I see something that's wrong, I say something like I, I am not hesitant to confront when I think something is wrong. So I think we all have gifts inside of us. We all have a genius inside of us and we just need to learn how to pull on the thread that's useful and to turn down the volume on the thread when it's not being useful. And that requires great self-awareness to know which of those to do. Dan, this was a ton of fun. 
And uh, like you said in the beginning, I'm grateful that our first one went somewhere in the universe. If anyone finds it in the cloud, just let me know. If you find it up there, our first conversation, send it to me and we'll post it again. Uh, I think that this one will work and I'm excited to share it with with our audience. If people want to learn more about what you're up to, I know you've got books, you're active on social media, you've got an incredible podcast that I was fortunate to come on. And uh, for those that don't know, Dan is just one of the more inquisitive uh, podcast hosts that I've had the opportunity to chat with. And you can see, you can hear his wisdom and his knowledge. And he's had on some amazing guests on his podcast. So I highly recommend people check that out, but let people know where they can follow you, where they can find you. If they want more Dan Abrahams in their life, how can they do that? I'm not sure they, they do, but um, look, firstly, thanks so much for having me on, Brian, and, and for giving me the opportunity to speak with you again. And um, look, my website is danabrahams.com. Um, my podcast is the sports site show that you just have to Google. Um, and we had a, a, a great time and you did one of my favorite episodes uh, a few weeks ago. So thank you for that. Um, my, uh, I've got three Twitter handles, but I'll give you the, uh, the football, the soccer one, which is at Dan Abrahams 77. There's also at Abrahams golf. Hey, I'll give you all three and then at the sports site show. Um, and then, um, in, uh, Facebook, uh, where I do a little uh, um, uh, post every day alongside my LinkedIn account um, is um, at uh, at Abraham's Soccer, um, I think it is, and then Instagram is at Abraham's Sport. I think that's it. Shameless, shameless marketing on uh, a, a cross section of social media. But uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Awesome, Dan. One day, maybe we'll change soccer to football and really confuse everybody so that you don't have to balance the soccer football thing. I, I don't know how we got into this this mess, but it's a uh, it's complicated web for us to follow. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, the book is called Shift Your Mind. If you haven't grabbed it, would appreciate it if you grabbed it. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it. And then, uh, yeah, welcome to uh, Intentional underscore performers on Instagram and at Brian Levinson at Instagram. Dan, always a pleasure. Hopefully we can continue to do this off air. And uh, one day I'm sure I'll head over to your side of the world and I'm sure you'll be over here and, and we'll grab a, a drink or a coffee or lunch or whatever uh, floats your boat in that, in that way. So thanks for coming on the podcast and we'll talk soon. Yes, buddy. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think it's incumbent on our sporting organizations, um, whether that's high school, college, professional, to um, have the best processes in place to help human beings optimize their engagement, their participation, um, progress and perform. And for me, that requires a, that requires a psychologically informed environment. P-I-E, P for psych psychologically, I for informed, E for environment, a pie, a psychologically informed environment. That is vital. In a psychologically informed environment, the coaching staff take into account the thoughts, feelings, experiences, and personalities of their players when they're having conversations about them and making decisions for them.